Your body is designed to be awake for 16 hours and it takes eight hours to replenish that body to be ready for 16 more hours of wakefulness. That's just the way it is. Pretty much all aging is caused by inadequate sleep. The most common cause of insomnia means you can't sleep because you're worried about not being able to sleep. If you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't look at the clock. It's best to not even have a clock. Why does it matter? It doesn't matter what time it is because you're dedicating all of this time to being asleep. My highest capability is going to be after I've had a good night's sleep. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I hope you are ready to get all of your sleep questions answered. This was originally going to be just one episode, but of course there were so many questions from you guys and Dr. Parsley and I just kept talking, so it became a two-part episode. So this is part one. The show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash sleep questions. Definitely check out those show notes because they will have a full transcript for the episode. And I will also put links to all of these sleep things that are a part of my sleep routine that really, really help as well as coupons for those. So I have a discount, for example, for Jew red light therapy, for Chili Pad, which is a cooling mattress you can use to regulate your sleep temperature. It's a game changer for me. For my Blue Blocks, Blue Light Blocking Glasses, also a game changer. The code for that I know is Melanie Avalon at blueblocks.com. And of course, I'll put a link. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Kirk Parsley. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited about the conversation that I am about to have. And this is a first for this podcast, as much as a a third can be a first. I am here with a repeat guest for the third time and a little bit of a backstory. So when I first started this show, when it comes to health, fitness, dare I say biohacking, there's diet, there's food, there's light, there's relationships, there's a lot of things. But one could possibly argue that one of the biggest factors in all of that is our sleep. And so when I first started this show, I knew I had to do a a foundational episode on sleep and I knew it had to be with one of the top go-to sleep experts. And I probably about five or six years ago-ish, I heard an interview on Rob Wolf's podcast, who I have now also had on the show. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But it was with a Mr. Dr. Kirk Parsley, who developed a sleep supplement called Sleep Remedy. But I heard that interview. It blew my mind about sleep. That was well before Sleep Remedy, I think. But if you heard the first podcast Rob and I did, that was... I did. Yeah, that was a couple of years before the product, I think. At least a year. Well, that's when I first heard you. That's when I became a fan slash very much interested in your work. And then when you came out with Sleep Remedy, which was when? It would have been this paleo effects would have been the fifth year. So this past May or so would have been the fifth year. And if you remember, we started as Sleep Cock. Okay, well, 
sleep cocktail. I see I'm an original. Which was the, the worst marketing name ever. Proving why I'm a doctor and not a marketer. I remember being really sad when you changed the name because I really liked the name Sleep Cocktail, but I understand the um, the issues with all of that. So I've actually been taking Sleep Remedy slash Sleep Cocktail probably since the day it came out. So one of the few consistents in my life, I was thinking about this since for the past five years, it's one of the few consistents in my life. And so I brought you on for, I think like the second or third episode of this show to do a foundational interview on sleep. And my audience loved that episode. They often say that it's their favorite. A lot of them got turned on to your sleep remedy supplement and have said that it's a game changer as well. And yeah, so we we had that episode. It was incredible. I brought you back like in March for an episode, not about sleep, on COVID actually. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot. I forgot we did that on COVID and you didn't get canceled. I did not. My mom told me that... (laughs) She told me my show was going to get taken down. But then I did actually a follow-up. I did two COVID interviews. I did you and David Sinclair. In any case, Sleep Remedy, I've been getting a lot of questions about for kids specifically. So when you recently released your kids supplement, I was like, oh my goodness, maybe it's time to bring you back on and maybe it's time to do a sleep Q&A episode because I get so many questions about sleep. So that's what this is about to be. I have so many questions from listeners, so I hope you have a lot of time to spend right now. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I always take the opportunity to stand on any soapbox I'm offered. Well, here's a soapbox for you. I appreciate the use of your soapbox. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And so a little bit about Dr. Parsley. A lot of you guys probably are pretty familiar, but if you are not... He has quite the resume, so he served as an undersea medical officer at the Naval Special Warfare Group 1 from 2009 to 2013. He developed and supervised the group's first sports medicine rehabilitation center. He's a former SEAL with a medical degree from Bethesda. No, so the actual name of the school is the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, which they pronounce as UCIS. Okay, yeah, you can just say that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's in Bethesda, and that's the easy thing to remember. It's attached to the Bethesda Hospital, essentially, right behind it. And you've been a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine since 2006. You've served as the Naval Special Warfare's expert on sleep medicine. You've got a TED Talk on sleep. You're certified in hormone modulation. Yeah, so thank you. Let's see if I can live up to that intro. I'm sure you can. You already have. So... Like I said, this is going to be listener Q&A, but I'm going to sprinkle in my little questions. Of course you will. I expect nothing less from you, Melanie. To start things off, I do have a lot of questions from listeners, but would you like to tell listeners briefly about your story? I'll put a link in the show notes to the first episode that we did because I think you give a really nice story about how you came to where what all you do with sleep medicine today. But would you like to tell for listeners who are not familiar a little bit about yourself? and why you're doing what you do? Sort of the well-told story from all the lectures and podcasts and media and all that and so forth. Basically, the, the Reader's Digest version, version of it is that I was always interested in sports medicine when I was thinking about going to medical school. And when I was actually, while I was in college, I worked at a sports medicine facility as a PT assistant. 
And then I had always planned in to go, had always planned to either go into sports medicine or orthopedic surgery. And, and I went to the military's medical school. I, so I, I was a SEAL. I got out. I went to college. And then I went to the military's medical school primarily because they, they would pay me to go to medical school instead of the other way around. And I was already married and had kids. And so it was the responsible and smart thing to do. And the way the military contracts work, of course, is they train you, they pay you to train, but then you have to use that training for them for you know, an appropriate amount of time. And so it's a, it's a two to one exchange essentially. So you have to stay in for eight years after, if you go to the medical school, you have to give them eight years as a doctor. The way they get general practitioners out in the Navy so that everybody doesn't just go from medical school and then specialize and then end up in, in a specialty to where they wouldn't really be of any much utility out in the fleet is they, they let you do your first year of residency and then they send you out to do what they call an operational tour, which is, you know, the Navy usually on a ship or something attached to a ship. And you can avoid the ships by a residency in undersea and hyperbaric medicine, which is submarines and divers. And of course, I did it so that I could go back to the SEAL teams and be the doctor for the SEAL teams. Those are my people, my brethren, and you know, gave me an opportunity to go give back to that community. When I got the job I wanted there, I got there at a very opportune time when they were building everything in the military takes multiple years to get done. And so they, they had had funding requests for a long time to build a rehab facility because we didn't have our own. So the SEALs have their own base. And so it's quite a drive to go to the hospital or to other medical clinics, whatever. And of course, the SEALs have a lot of orthopedic injuries and a lot of surgeries. So why not have our own facility? And so I got there right when that got funded. Of course, having worked in as a PT assistant for five years when I was an undergrad, I had a great foundation for that. I was I was really interested in sports medicine and ortho. So it was like a perfect fit. And they put me in charge of building out this facility. And then we hired first nutritionist and our first strength and conditioning coach and our first exercise physiologist and our first PT and our first PT assistant and athletic trainers and all this stuff. And we built this amazing complex for guys to rehab from their injuries. But then I was the dumbest guy around because we'd hired all these experts who had their little niche in this. And so when you're the dumbest guy, they just put you in charge of everybody and they say, well, you're in charge and you just, you just run it. What would happen is the SEALs, because my office was in that facility, the SEALs would come in my office and I'd been a SEAL recently enough to where there were still plenty of guys in the SEAL teams that I'd been a SEAL with. So plenty of people there who knew me, I had a good reputation, they trusted me. And so they would come in and they'd tell me their problems. Usually they don't share their problems with people because, with medical professionals, because the doctors can you know, disqualified them from a job, just like as a professional athlete, you can put them, put them on the bench. If you say, you know, they have too, they have too severe of a medical issue or, or something that needs to be evaluated or treated to go back into their job. And so they hide it all. And they came in and they told me other problems and I won't go into all the details of it, but basically they didn't have any medical disease. They just weren't performing to the level that they felt they should be able to perform to. They felt like something was holding them back. They were losing muscle. They were getting fatter. They were getting weaker. They were getting slower. They weren't necessarily be, you know, old enough for that to be justifiable. Somewhere, and that was a component of it. But you know, their their attention was gone. Their concentration, their verbal fluency, their problem solving abilities, like all these cognitive, emotional, and physical complaints that just were 
I'm not where I should be. I'm not quite where I feel like, like I feel like I'm, you know, even their motivation, they're motivated. It's a highly motivated group of guys and they'll still get up and do the job, but like they're forcing themselves to do it. Whereas they used to just love to do it. I was a Western trained medical physician. So I knew how to diagnose and treat disease and they didn't have any disease. So it led me down this whole sort of integrative functional alternative pathway just looking for something that could explain all of these symptoms. And I expected it to be several things. And I really just, you know, from the patients, you know, taking patient histories and patient after patient telling me that they were using sleep drugs, you know, after I'd heard it, heard, you know, a hundred people say that I thought, well, maybe we should evaluate if, you know, sleep drugs have any side effects that could be causing this. And I didn't like, I didn't really know. And so I, I started learning about sleep. I started learning about sleep drugs and then I started learning about sleep and I was like, wow, this one thing could really explain 90% of their symptoms or maybe even 100% of their symptoms. I just really dove really deep, fast, hard into, into learning about sleep and trying to change the, you know, the culture, the community's beliefs around sleep, getting people off of sleep drugs, doing some mild supplementation because, you know, I can't just take away their sleep drugs and say, go sleep. So that's how the product, you know, the, the sleep supplement that we have now, like that's how that got created was just basically just piecemealing it together, supplement by supplement, things that were helping guys sleep and then figuring out the right quantities of all of that. And that led me to sharing stages with, you know, Rob Wolf and Chris Kresser and, you know, Dave Asprey and kind of like all those types of people who were, had these internet presence and some notoriety or what, I don't know, whatever you would call that. And, you know, they were influencers. I just kind of got sucked into the, to the jet stream of all of that and then ended up lecturing all around the world and writing a book and doing a TED talk and having my you know, producing my own sleep supplements and all that. And so that that's how I'm here. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. It's a wonderful journey because I'm super grateful for the sleep supplement, as is the rest of my audience. And I'm sure we will dive deep into it. Okay. So now, now we can jump into the questions because I have so many questions from listeners. I asked on my Facebook group, which everybody should join. If you're not there, it's called IF Biohackers. Definitely join that community. There's a lot of fun stuff in there. So I asked for questions for you and we got a ton. So to start, this is just to get a general sleep concepts down. Beatrix says, what does optimal sleep really look like? How many hours of light sleep, deep sleep, and REM sleep should one get for optimal rest and recovery? It depends. So it depends on your age. Children need a lot more sleep than adults. They have different ratios of of deep to, well, let's just say non-REM and REM. There, there's, there's lots of different ways to categorize the, the levels of sleep or the, the stages of sleep. We'll be simple and say non-REM and REM. So the non-REM is usually, I'm assuming that the, you know, the woman who asked the question is probably using some sort of tracking device, an aura ring, a, a Garmin watch or I don't know what all Fitbits and Whoop bands and all the, you know, there's tons of things that you can use to track. There's varying technology amongst these things, varying accuracy. That's why it depends. My personal view on it and when I work with clients, you know, I'm, I'm primarily interested in your subjective experience of sleep. 
your objective, like how, how do you feel like you slept? Which is ironic because the whole definition of being asleep is that you're not aware of your environment. So how can you be aware of how well you sleep? Did you fall asleep easily? Did you sleep without waking up, at least to your knowledge? Not waking up, did you feel refreshed and well-rested when you woke up? Like that, that's the primary thing. Now, secondly, are you you know, how is your performance? So if you've been chronically sleep deprived and you get to where you're, you're sleeping, like I just described, are there any performance metrics that you can pick up, you know, that you can notice? Are you, you know, are, are you less emotional? Do you feel you have better concentration? Are you, are you a runner? Is your running time getting faster? Do you lift weights? Are you getting stronger? Do you notice, are there any noticeable changes in, in you? That's sort of the second metric. If you're wearing a wearable device because they track different ways, you're going to end up with different ratios. You're going to, because some of them are just pure actigraphy, which means that if you don't move, you're, you know, it's calling that deep sleep. Well, you're paralyzed during REM sleep. You're not paralyzed during deep sleep. So technically, you know, I don't know what we're really calling it. You know, I don't know what we're calling what at that point, but some of them will break it down and say, well, this was non-REM and that was REM. And there's varying degrees of accuracy with that. But basically the overall answer to that question, if you had, let's say a polysomnograph, like a real sleep study every night, it would approximately be equal parts non-REM and REM and then a certain component of that is going to be transitional sleep, what we call stage two sleep. So the, and, and what happens is your first sleep cycle is 80 to 90% deep sleep, 10 to 20% REM. If you sleep your full eight hours, the last sleep cycle is the opposite of that. 80 to 90% REM sleep, 10 to 20% deep sleep. If you just progress through that phase, you know, from mainly deep to mainly REM, you're going to end up with approximately the same amount. Now, the problem is you have to, there's that transition period of sleep when you're not in either one of those, you're in stage two. And that can eat up an hour of your sleep. That can eat up two hours of your sleep. And it could be perfectly normal that it's eating up two hours of your sleep or an hour of your sleep or 30 minutes of your sleep. So, Non-REM and REM approximately even. The best use of wearable devices is consistency. Because none of them are 100% accurate, nothing is 100% accurate, but the best reason to have one of those devices in the, and I think the only reason to track your sleep is if you're planning on doing something about it, if your sleep isn't as good as you want it to be. The primary benefit of those, if it, like if you wear the Aura Ring, which I think is a really good product, whether it's 50% as accurate as a sleep study or 100% as accurate, doesn't, it doesn't matter. What matters is that from night to night, if you're getting that quality sleep that I described earlier, if you're getting that quality night sleep, from night to night, it should look approximately the same. If you start noticing, wow, half of my night was stage two sleep, then there's something wrong with your sleep. And that's really what you can use them for. But like I couldn't say you should sleep 8.2 hours and you should have 3.4 hours of deep sleep and 2.7 hours of REM sleep and you should have this much. Like, you know, that, that, that really can't be done. But the approximation is non-REM just... If we just lump non-REM into one category and REM into another category, about equal parts of those two. Okay, awesome. So I'm already going off track because you touched on so many things. 
It kind of sounds like, because right now I'm wearing a CGM and I am questioning the (laughs) accuracy of the measurements, but it doesn't change like the trends that I can see at least. So it sort of sounds like like that maybe, but like with the sleep tracking that you can see like the trends. I don't know. I don't know what the term for all of those things are, you know, all the wearables and all the biometrics that people are collecting on themselves. Again, unless, unless you're an expert in that field or you're working with an expert in that field, who's telling you, you know, we're going to do interventions to get to this place. What you're really using that for is a historical record and a consistency thing. So if you, know your sleep is terrible and you don't feel good and you're going to improve your sleep. Well, why not wear a wearable that then shows you that you're improving your sleep? And then you find out what a good night's sleep looks like for you. It may not be what it would look like for me or somebody else. On your wearable device, we might look totally different and both get a good night's sleep, but we know what a good night's sleep for you looks like. And now that can be your foundation. And when you don't get a good night's sleep, you can evaluate it and say, you know, did I eat too late? Did I eat too many? Did I eat too many refined carbohydrates? Did I drink alcohol? Did I drink alcohol too close to bed? Was I more stressed? Did I overdo my exercise? Did I not exercise for a while? Like, and you can then use that as an assessment tool to be like, I want to get back to what I know a good night's sleep for me is. And the same thing with, you know, something like your your CGM. It's like, are you just interested into how much your blood glucose rises and how quickly it comes down? So like sort of what is my insulin sensitivity? Or are you like, I have a number that I want to keep it at because I want to decrease glycosylization on my red blood cells. And, you know, and like I have this goal and I, and I want to get there. So I want my HbA1c to be 4.2. And so I'm going to drive it. I need my blood glucose to average, you know, 70 for like whatever, like you can use it either way or you can just say, I'm observing what I look like when I eat well, I comparing it to what I look like when I don't eat well. And that could be the motivation or that could be the metric for knowing like sort of are things, are your interventions working? The devices themselves aren't the intervention. The devices are just a way to measure it and you can't improve anything you can't measure. Exactly. So you already answered these questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to throw them in so that they can know that it was answered and be represented. So you just answered, Margaret said, I'm curious if you have thoughts on the effectiveness and accuracy of the aura ring for sleep data. And also what devices do you think are most accurate for analyzing sleep? So do you think a certain one is more accurate? I think, and this isn't my personal knowledge, but I have friends who are who are sleep researchers who who are specifically studying these devices. In fact, I know a woman who's studying these devices on SEALs, coincidentally. It looks like that the Aura Ring is probably the most accurate. I don't think it's a landslide victory, but I think it's a significant victory as far as like comparing it to a polysomnograph, like what we consider like the gold standard for sleep studies. The Aura Ring seemed to be the closest I think the Whoop bands are kind of on par with the Garmin watches. And interestingly, I think she's done some research. This one woman in particular I'm thinking about has done some research where she could combine the Garmin and the Oric together to get like better data. But I would say those those three are probably the top. But again, I don't think it really matters. It depends. That That's not the question she's asking, but just... For me to throw my two cents in there, 
you know, you can have the app that's on your iPhone, you know, to track your sleep. I forget what it's called. And, and, and you can use that just, it, just as long as you have some metric. Like I have, I have older, I have older clients who don't have any interest in any kind of gadgetry and they just have a journal and they write down, you know, depending on how much work we're doing, you know, they, they might write down what they ate for dinner, if they drank or not, what time they went to bed. And then when they wake up in the morning, they say how long they think they were awake before they fell asleep and how long they slept and how they feel. And that's, you know, they write that down in a couple of minutes and that's it. That's how we're tracking their sleep. And then that works too. Well, first of all, for listeners, that's good to hear about the Aura Ring because I am actually bringing on the CEO of Aura and listeners are actually usually surprised to know that I, I haven't tried an Aura Ring yet because that seems exactly like something I would do. So I'm really excited to try it out. I'll be trying it out soon and doing an interview. So stay tuned for that. You also answered Tamla's question. She was wondering about Fitbit and their sleep technology, but I feel like we covered the the devices pretty well. I think those are all kind of, I mean, the, the really the only unique one that I'm aware of is the aura ring. And I think the reason it's the most accurate is because it can measure arterial because, it, because of where it's placed and nothing on your wrist is going to be able to measure your arteries because the artery is so close to the skin. It can measure the artery itself and it requires way less energy so they can monitor more frequently. So I think that's why it's the best. I think like the technology is very similar to the other devices. They've just they were the ones that came up with the idea of like, well, why don't we put it on the finger and, and like see if we can get arterial blood instead of venous blood? And then they have actigraphy built in and heart rate variability and all those other things too. This is so helpful. I'm taking notes for that interview. This sparked another question that was sort of related. Anna says, because you were talking about how like the perception of sleep is really important. Anna says, I always felt that I do better with five to six hours. But then she says, in the past few years, since doing IF, her sleep is all over the place. And more recently, it's been more like eight to nine hours. That seems like a perception thing. And then like similarly, Jill said her aura ring gave her really high readings, but she felt horrible all day. And it's happened before. Yeah. So, you know, so Jill just needs to figure out what a good night of sleep looks like for her on her, on her aura ring. Whether, you know, whether or not aura says this is your best night or not if you feel like it was a really good night's sleep you know take notes <laughs> figure out like okay what what did i do tonight that was different than what i've done in the past or if you feel like you got a really bad night's sleep and i can almost guarantee you although i can't 100 guarantee you, i can almost guarantee you that once you figure out what feels like a really good night for you sleep wise it's going to have a pattern on that on on that data and you'll know that that's your pattern. And then that's your ideal. That's what you're going for your ideal. Even if, even if Aura says that's not your ideal, that's what your ideal is because you, that's when you feel and perform the best and you've done everything correctly, that, that becomes your gold standard. I love that. That's empowering. So what about Anna's question about like in the past, she felt like she was great on less sleep and now she feels like she needs more. Yeah. So what that is, I'm sure we talked about on the on the first podcast. The exact opposite of deep sleep is fight or flight. I'm sure most people in your audience know what that is. Fight or flight is essentially the highest stress response you can possibly produce. It causes the highest 
levels of stress hormones to be secreted from your adrenals that can possibly be secreted. During that time, you become sort of superhuman. You become physiologically really powerful. You get stronger and faster. Your reflexes get better. Your, your endurance increases. Your pulmonary tree dilates. You can take bigger breaths. Your pupils dilate. You take in more light. Your reflexes get faster. Your pain threshold increases. You're like you you become this machine that's driven to get away from a single threat. That single threat, whether it's somebody with a gun or a tiger and the, you know, or whatever, a snake, like whatever it is that's causing that fight or flight, you are programmed over millennia that 100% of our resources right now are going to energize this body. We don't care about the brain. We don't care about any of the organs other than the organs that are pumping blood or, or oxygenating blood. So essentially, all of your physiologic functions suffer unless it's making you faster or stronger, like all those things that I just said. Now, the exact opposite of that happens during deep sleep. The whole another story. But So that's all what's called anabolic, meaning we're taking small, small particles and we're, when we're building more complex structures with them, yeah, you can think of those like anabolic steroids is what they've always called what bodybuilders take. Their muscles get bigger, right? So they're, they're, taking, they're taking in food, they're exercising, their physiology is take, turning that food into these protein structures called muscles and they're getting bigger. When you're in fight or flight, you're catabolic, which is the opposite. We're now using those complex structures and breaking them down to make fuel for the rest of our body. So when you're starving, your cortisol levels go up. And we'll use cortisol as the, as the simple one to talk about stress. So when you're starving, your cortisol levels go up, which is why a lot of people, when they start a calorie-restricted diet or intermittent fasting, they have problems sleeping because cortisol keeps you awake. The whole purpose of cortisol is to keep you alert in proportion to your environment. When you're in deep sleep, you have almost no cortisol because you don't need cortisol. You're not paying attention to your environment. You don't need to be awake. You don't need to be alert. What you need to be is super anabolic. Now, the reason we can put people in caves with no light and they'll still sleep about the same amount of time and they'll wake up almost about the same amount of time is because it's not like the sun isn't technically waking anybody up, right? It's this cycle. What's really waking you up is your cortisol level. You have the lowest cortisol The very when you first go to sleep and you go into your first deep sleep cycle, almost all your cortisol is gone. It's like the lowest it's ever going to be and you're the most anabolic you're ever going to be. And then throughout the course of the night, as you, as you repair and you do more REM sleep, which is more cognitively active. You're having dreams and, you know, your body's just coming, becoming slightly, you know, more, more and more awake because your cortisol levels are coming up. And with no light or no alarm clock or no intervention, at some point, your cortisol level will be high enough to wake you up. And then your cortisol levels creep up throughout the day and they peak somewhere around two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And then they start coming back down. And at some level, they're, once they get low enough, you can fall asleep. So it's a really long-winded way of answering this question, but if you don't get enough sleep, and I don't know if I said this on your podcast before, but the easy way to think about it is your body, your body is designed to be awake for 16 hours and it, and it takes eight hours to repair, rejuvenate, replenish that body to be ready for 16 more hours of wakefulness. That's just the way it is. You can argue with that. You can not want that. You can dislike that. I don't care. It, it's true. There's no controversy on it. So really the purpose of sleep today is to get you ready for tomorrow. 
So at the end of tonight, everything that I did today, my body's going to use the template for what it wants to get better at so that tomorrow I can be at least as good as it was today. Ideally, maybe a little bit better. Now, if I don't sleep eight hours and I sleep six hours instead, well, I still have to do tomorrow. So how am I going to do tomorrow? I didn't completely repair and replenish. So what am I going to do? What's my compensatory mechanism? Stress hormones. Not fight or flight, not that high. It's not going to drive me crazy, but it's going to drive my stress hormones up. It's going to drive my stress hormones towards that fight or flight, you know, maybe 10% that way or 20% that way. And what do you feel like when you're in fight or flight? Like, yeah, you might feel scared, but man, do you feel alert and powerful and concentrated and right? It's like, man, I am on it, right? You are the best you can possibly be. So when you're under sleeping, and because, you know, the whole definition of sleep is that we're not at all, we're not paying any attention to our senses. So we're not paying any attention to our environment. So we don't have a good objective experience of sleep. Like we just don't. We can only say like how, well, I don't remember anything. Like I, I remember getting in bed. I don't remember anything. And then I woke up like, you know, right around sunrise and I just feel great. Like that's the best possible metric you can have for sleep, you know, without wearing some sort of device and validating and all that other stuff. So if you only sleep five or six hours, you're going to use these hormones and these hormones are going to be high because unfortunately, when you don't sleep, you become more catabolic. You have to have higher stress hormones to get through the day, which means that your stress hormones are going to be higher when you go to sleep as well. And which means that they're going to creep up earlier in the morning and you're going to feel like six hours is the right amount of time for you because your stress hormones are going to be high enough to wake you up after six hours because that's what you've been doing to yourself. This is my question. You said there's no controversy that we need eight hours, that that's what we need. If it's about repair, wouldn't that be dependent on the amount of damage occurring and also the efficiency of your repair processes? Like, Couldn't some people need less? Absolutely. I, I, I wasn't I wasn't being glib as much as I was just generalizing. So, of course, age is a huge factor. Newborns, it's it's normal for them to sleep up to 20 hours a day. Adolescents need, you know, probably 10 to 12 hours per day. Unfortunately, they're all getting like six, but so it's a whole, whole other story. And then, but what I was referring to is is the generalized idea averaged over time adults, fully formed adults. So let's say at least 25-ish, right? Let's see, somewhere around 25, you become what we call, you know, just an, an adult physiologically, neurologically, your, your prefrontal cortex is fully developed and everything that's going to grow and get better has grown and gotten better. Wait, 25 is when you technically become an adult? I actually didn't know that. I'm thinking of cognitive development. The prefrontal cortex is like the last area of your brain to fully develop, which is why we don't treat teenagers like adults because they don't have a good prefrontal cortex. And that's really, that's what makes us smart. That's what allows us to understand the consequences of our actions and predict the consequences of our actions, be able to think through stuff. Like you, you know, if you're 16, you need to jump off the roof into the pool to see if you can do it. You know, when you're 25, you're like, oh, I don't need to do that. Like, yeah, I could probably make it, but I can look at the, you know, like the risk to reward ratio and say that's not a good idea. And that's why not as many 25 year olds do stupid stuff like that. And so that, you know, that's why we treat people like children. And, you know, in women's brains, 
become fully mature, their prefrontal cortex becomes fully mature slightly earlier than men. So most, most women, their prefrontal cortex is fully formed by, I want to say 20 to 21, but I think as early as 18, but I think the average is somewhere around 20 to 21. And then for men, it's like 23 kind of to 25. And that's why women say men are less mature because they are up until their prefrontal cortex is fully developed. And that leads to more impulsive activities and so forth. And there, of course, there's evolutionary theory that that's part of evolution, that it's selected for people whose brains are like that so that you could get people to go to war and chase big, big dangerous animals and, you know, fight off other tribes and all those other types of stuff. But that's neither here nor there. It happens a little later in men. So total, that's a total tangent, but let's say like once you're fully formed, you can call it whatever age you want to. I'm just going to use sort of early 20s as as the guideline. Your brain's fully formed, your body's fully formed. If we measured your sleep, let's say over the course of a month or a year, about eight hours is is roughly it. You know, I've heard it be super specific, 8.12 hours, 8.2, whatever. It's like... But to your point, yes, if I go out and I run an ultra marathon today, first of all, I couldn't, but if I, let's say I could, if I could run an ultra marathon today, I would be exhausted and I would need more sleep tonight and probably the next night, the next night for a while, I'll need some more sleep because I've put my body through a lot of, done a lot of damage. Or if I got up super early and I like say yesterday, looked over spreadsheets for 12 hours to get all the last minute tax information I needed and it like really stressed my brain. Well, then I'm going to need a little more sleep. I've always said eight hours plus or minus half an hour. That's kind of like the, the gist of it. But again, it depends on what you're doing, how hard you're training your body. So yes, if you're an if, like if you're a serious athlete, even if you're just like a weekend age grouper, but it's something you take very seriously and you really want to do well and perform well and you're measuring yourself and competing, you probably need like nine or 10 hours of sleep, to be honest. I mean, and, you know, unless your sport is, I don't know, badminton or something, but, you know, but if it's, it's something like you know, this pretty rigorous, I, and I shouldn't say that I've heard badminton actually pretty, could be pretty tiring, but you, you get my point. The harder you push yourself, the, the more recovery you need. But the overall average across all the literature for the past 50 years is that it's approximately eight hours of sleep per night. Don't older, the elderly sleep less? I believe that's primarily behavioral. I was wondering if like the body was like consciously just choosing not to repair things anymore, which would be really sad. The reason old people shrink and get hunched over and lose muscle and all that, they are in a catabolic phase. So essentially aging, pretty much all aging is caused by inadequate sleep in the most generalized way of saying it. So what I mean by that is when you're young, obviously you're going to bed one way, you're getting let's say it's ideal and you you live in a great environment where you can where you can optimize your sleep and you're a teenager and you get 12 hours of sleep you're waking up the next day actually better bigger smarter right like you've you've actually improved who you are so you're not you're not aging in the way we think of age as being a disease like a declining like you're still on your way up somewhere around that 25 year old thing you're kind of peaking and you can hold on to that for five or ten years 15 years maybe which in which you can 
use your body to the, you know, your body and your brain to the, your desired level, go to sleep for eight ish hours per night, and then wake up the next day and be just as good as you were when you went to bed. But over time, what happens is you don't sleep quite enough. Your anabolic activities, I'm using this as though it's a simple thing. There, there are thousands of biochemical reactions that are determining whether you're more an what tissues are anabolic and which tissues are catabolic but as a general sort of global thing you're very anabolic when you're young you kind of have a stasis somewhere in the middle where you can you know slightly improve you kind of maybe flip-flop go up and down a little bit and then at some point it seems that you know that eight hours of sleep isn't quite enough and so you're going to bed you know, if I go to bed tonight, I'm 100%, right? So I'm 100% of who I am today, right? I'm I'm 50 years old. And so maybe my sleep isn't quite as great as it was when I was 25 years old. My anabolic states aren't quite as good. So tomorrow, I'm not waking up the same as today. Tomorrow, I'm waking up 99.996 or something. Like I've lost a bit. Maybe I've gotten better in like selective areas. Like maybe I learned some stuff, maybe, you know, whatever. But over the course of your life your ability to be anabolic and repair through your sleep diminishes. So eight hours isn't quite enough to repair, but you don't have any physiologic mechanism that's allowing you to sleep longer than say that eight hours. So that's really all your body's going to do. And it's not quite enough to repair. So you're waking up a little bit worse and you start becoming catabolic and you lose protein structures. You lose collagen in your skin and your, and your skin starts to sag and get thinner. You lose muscle mass. You start to put on a little bit of fat. You don't clean out your brain completely. And there's some protein structures in there that are kind of impairing your cognitive functioning. And then, then you're what we call old. But I have worked with people in their late 70s. I think I had one, one client who is... I want to say she was 82. She was 81 or 82. She hadn't slept more than four and a half hours in 20 years. You know, she lived alone. She lived on not quite a farm, but she had some property. She, you know, she gardened. She had, you know, she had some, she had work to do around her place every day. And she just said, well, that's just it. I just can't like, this is how much I need to sleep. And I worked with her for about six months and it was just purely 100% lifestyle changes and sleep hygiene. She did start the supplement. I don't know if she still takes it, but she, she started sleeping eight hours a night in her eighties and she felt a lot better and she felt a lot smarter and other, every, everybody else noticed differences in her too. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples. 
meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. 
And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. That will be good news for Sharon because her question was pretty much that. She said, my mother is 82 and no matter what I do for her, I've tried everything. She cannot sleep for more than two hours at a time. She wakes up and stays awake for hours. It's been going on for years and she's declining quickly because of it. She is in really good health with no cognitive decline, but she's only sleeping a total of four to five hours at night. I believe her mind cannot stay still once she wakes. Is there something that will keep the mind calm or still upon waking so she can get back to sleep? She says she doesn't eat after dinner because of acid reflux. I think she would do better if she ate a small amount of protein and fat to keep her cortisol from waking her up. She's underweight and I think blood sugar is playing a role. What does Dr. Parsley have to say about that? That's a smart listener right there. That's actually, Sharon is assistant for us. So I was like, I make sure her question gets in. That's a really good question. Okay, so I have on my site, if you've never been to my site, I think you might have to opt in to get this and download it. But I know it's on my site and it's called it's called the stress-free sleep worksheet. And it basically teaches people how it's not magic. It's gonna, it takes a lot of behavioral change, uh, a lot of behavioral changes and a lot of work on your end and a lot of motivation on your end. But I, I basically teach people how to get rid of that problem, that problem, meaning that their brain is really active and it's actually their cognitive functioning. They may not even have really high stress hormones, but the more awake you are, with it, as I just said earlier, your stress hormones are secreted in proportion to your environment. So when you're asleep, you don't need very many stress hormones. When you wake up, if you start thinking about things, even if they're not necessarily 
you know, not even uh, stressful things. It could be pleasurable things. You're thinking, and as you're thinking, you're, you know, it, it could be something physical in your body. So, like, your 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 muscles are actually slightly rehearsing it, right? That's, like, the whole idea of visual, visualization. You can, like, practice movements without even moving, and you're sort of laying in your bed, and you're thinking about jujitsu or something, and you're, like, actually kind of moving around in, in such, you know, to such a small degree, you can't notice it, you know, but your muscles are firing, you're like nerves are firing, like, okay, like we're, we're simulating this. Or you're thinking about maybe something stressful. Maybe you're thinking about your taxes or whether or not your kid's going to get into the college she wants to go to or whatever. Like, you know, it can be things, cognitive activity on its own can wake you up. What if you think about sleeping? The most common cause of insomnia is what we call psychophysiologic insomnia, which means you can't sleep because you're worried about not being able to sleep. So what this worksheet does, and I'll summarize it, is basically we categorize all of your worries. This is the work you have to do. And and you have to be thorough with this and you have to be honest. Like nobody else is ever going to read this. This is just for you. And you're going to categorize all the things that you think about, like all your to-do list. But then you also have what's called a to-worry list. And the, to- the difference between the two is that there's nothing you can do about the things you're worrying about them, but you still want to worry about them. Because if you don't put them on the sheet, then you might forget to worry about them. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe worrying was going to solve it somehow. And so then you're going to worry about it not being on your list. So there's some sleep hygiene sort of at the beginning of the night. This work needs to be done during the day. It's going to take probably multiple days, multiple blocks to get all of that really thoroughly down. And then there's this agreement that you make with yourself. And it basically comes down to the summary that I said earlier. The entire point of sleeping tonight is to make me ready for tomorrow. So if I have a bunch of stuff to handle, the most able I will ever be, my highest capability is going to be after I've had a good night's sleep. I'm going to be the smartest. I'm going to be the strongest. I'm going to be the fastest. I'm going to have the highest creativity. I'm going to have the highest attention and the best problem solving skills that I'm ever going to have after a good night's sleep. So if I have challenging things to deal with, why wouldn't I want to show up with 100% of my resources? So then you commit to these eight hours are for sleep. They're not for that list. They're to get ready for that list. So though none of those things are allowed, you can't think about any of those things. That's why we have the list. So when you wake up in the morning, you're going to handle your list. So you have, you set an alarm clock to tell you when it's time to get ready for bed, preferably like an hour before bed, you have this alarm clock. And once that alarm clock goes off, that's just as important as the morning alarm clock. They're exactly the same importance. And you do your nighttime rituals, whatever those are, and then you get into bed. And you don't need to look at a clock then either because you, you, you just do your ritual. You do your nighttime ritual, you get ready for bed, and then you get in bed. The only reason you're going to get out of bed is if you need to go to the bathroom or your alarm clock goes off. There's no other reason to get out of bed because you've dedicated those eight hours to sleep. Those eight hours are for getting ready for tomorrow. And so if you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't look at the clock. It's best to not even have a clock. Why does it matter? It doesn't matter what time it is because you're dedicating all of this time to being asleep. If you look at the clock, then you start thinking about, well, what if I don't go back to sleep? I've only slept 
three hours and 30 minutes and I need to be ready for tomorrow. Kirk says, I need to be ready for tomorrow. And I'm not, what if I'm not ready? And, and then you start stressing yourself out or, you know, maybe you wake up an hour and a half early and you're like, well, you know, I actually feel pretty good. I might as well just get up and get going. I'm like, you know, I have a lot of stuff to do. My list is really heavy. All of these things defeat sleep. Like you have to make these eight hours. This is non-negotiable. These hours are for sleep. That's all they're for. That's all they're for. And so you get in bed and you do whatever you need to do to relax, de-stress. You can do progressive muscle relaxation, breath work, meditation, like whatever it is that your thing is. And you're just going to lay there and let's just pick one. And so you're going to lay there and you're going to meditate until you fall asleep. And if you wake up, you're just going to lay in bed and meditate until your alarm clock goes off or you fall back asleep. And let's say you wake up 30 minutes before your alarm clock goes off. You wouldn't know it because you're supposed to have a blacked out room and you, and you didn't look at the clock. So how do you know if the alarm clock's going to go off in three hours or 30 minutes? You don't know. So you just lay there and meditate. Well, you might meditate for 30 minutes and the alarm clock goes off. Then you get out of bed. You go, well, then I didn't get eight hours of sleep. It's like, right. But you got seven and a half hours of sleep and 30 minutes of meditation. That's way better than just seven and a half hours of sleep. There's more detail. There's more detail than that, but I'm just trying to cram it in because I know we're on a limited time. Okay. So I love lists. I just wrote worry list on my list to start that list. So the worry list is at night and the to-do list is in the morning. No, you have to make both of them during the day because the whole idea is to not let this list stress you out. So you don't want to be doing this list list at night. This is something you could maybe do over a weekend or, you know, come home on a Friday night, an early night, have a dinner and a glass of wine and just start or, you know, just start. I think there's on the PDF, there's like a printable version of this even. And, and you can just the left hand side of the paper is just your to do list. And those are just mechanical things that have to get done that you can check off your list. And then the right side is your to-worry list. And you'll find that, well, somebody like you, maybe the left-hand side changes a lot day-to-day. But most people, the left-hand side won't actually change that much. And the right-hand side will almost never change at all. It might not change for years. Like you might be worrying about the same things for years. So the list can be updated daily and it should be updated daily because the last thing that you want to do is wake up in the middle of the night and think about something and go, yeah, I forgot to do that. And I really need, I really need to make sure that I do that tomorrow. And I know it's not on my list or I don't think I put it on my list. So you have your list next to your bedtime and that's the only caveat where you're you're allowed to do anything other than go to the bathroom is you can add something to your list. Like you can just go, Oh, I've got to remember to do that. And now you can't think about it again. It's like, it's on the list. right. Now it's on the list. So the most important pact is that you believe, and you have to convince yourself of this, that you believe the best you will ever be at handling your list is after you've got a good night's sleep. So That means even things you enjoy on your to-do list, they're going to bring you more joy. They're going to be more pleasant because you're going to be the better version of you. And if they're really strenuous things or they're really stressful things, you're going to be able to handle them better. If they're really confusing things, you're going to be able to handle them better. You're going to have the best brain, the best emotions, the best body you can possibly have to handle all that stuff on that list. And that's non-negotiable, man. That's like... 
you know, it's like filling up my car with gas, you know, <laughs> driving cross country and I'm almost out of gas. I stop and I go, you know what? I'm just going to put in a quarter of a tank, half a tank. I'm going to try to drive as far. You know, it won't work. It can't work, right? You Like it's a machine. Your body's really kind of a really, really complex machine. It takes eight hours to get ready. <laughs> like that's, that's all there is to it. You can you can hate it or like it, but it's it's true. Now, that, like I said, there's some variations. If you say if you say seven hours and fifteen minutes is perfect for you, go ahead. If you say you need nine, go ahead. You know, but in general, it's about eight hours, and you have to do a little bit of experimentation with yourself. Okay, I'm going to start doing this, and I actually have the perfect book for it. I think it's. It's literally for this sort of, it says like, write it down, let it go. And you're supposed to just write it down and let it go. And I was keeping it on my bedside for this purpose, but I haven't done this. I just need to make it a non-negotiable, like you said, because everything else about my sleep is non-negotiable. Like the blackout curtains, the blue light blocking glasses, the chili pad, the ear- everything else. <laughs> so I need to start doing this too. The irony is of all of the interventions that I can do with people, all the way up to pharmaceuticals, like of everything I do for people, this really simple, ridiculously simple thing is the most powerful thing. Almost everybody who has insomnia, and then when I say almost everybody, I'm just saying almost to cover my butt, but I don't, I can't remember a single person I've ever worked with who's done this and it's not, and it hasn't cured their insomnia. So for listeners, I will put links to all of this in the show notes. The show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash sleep questions. So you answered some other questions for people. So like like Rosalie, she said, how to shut her mind off. I can't fall asleep. So something like this worry list. That's a big component, but then you have to figure out something that you can do. Keep in mind, like perfect is the enemy of good. If you need to put an audio book on and like that's the only thing, only way you can distract yourself, do that as much as you have to. <laughs> you know, put a little timer on it, have it shut off earlier and earlier, turn the volume down and work your way out of it. If you need guided meditation to meditate, do that. If you want to learn how to do breath work, if you want to learn how to do progressive muscle relaxation, if you want to learn how to do anything that can decrease stress hormones. So, you know, pretty much all of the metaphysical tie-dyes, hippie beads, chakra stuff. And it's all built around the central nervous system, the the balance of your autonomic nervous system. And you can just, because it means the same thing, you could just call it the automatic nervous system. So this isn't things you're thinking about. Like I'm moving my hands right now. That's not automatic. Like I'm doing that. But my heart's beating and I'm breathing. And my, you know, like there's all these things that are going on that I'm not thinking about. And that's autonomic. It's automatically happening. Like I said, when we're under stress, your body behaves one way, and that's the sympathetic. And when you're not under stress and you're in deep sleep, say it's very parasympathetic, it's the opposite. So you have exactly the opposite things going on. All of this stuff is built around decreasing the sympathetic nervous system. It's decreasing the stress hormones and then the consequences of those stress hormones, which are the consequences that look closer and closer to fight or flight. And so whatever you can do like it just depends on you everybody kind of has their own preference you know that's what counting sheep is about if you actually visualize the sheep and you think about the sheep and you're like trying to be really vivid with this and you're counting your sheep you can't think about something else (laughs) right 
and and you and I have had this conversation before. Like, there's no such thing as multitasking. There's serial tasking. You can go back and forth between them. But you, if you really concentrate on something, you can't think about anything else by definition. That's what concentration means. And then you quit worrying. You decrease your stress hormones because you're counting these fluffy, harmless animals. Like, no one tells you to count cobras, right? That, that wouldn't be calming. Like, the whole idea is like something that's completely inert, something that's completely benign just to take your mind off of it. It's a very simplified version of meditation. Reading kids' books, like especially Dr. Seuss books that have these rhythmic rhyming, like you know, this this tone that's just in the story that just follows like and your kid's brain just picks up on that. And it's like this comforting little backstroke of, you know, I do not like green animals and ham. I do not like them, Sam. I am like this this whole kind of thing repeats and the and actually the more familiar your kid is with the story, the more likely he or she is going to go to sleep really well with that story because it's better for them not to be thinking about it. It's better for them to know it super well. And like this, this whole process of reading them stories when they go to sleep is to get their minds off of anything else, to get their mind off of the, the fact that they don't want to be asleep, get their mind off the, you know, if they, if they're old enough to have stress, you know, and depending on your kids or whatever it is, it's like to get their mind off of it. You read them this rhythmic lovely, rhyming, entertaining, non-threatening book. That's sort of in the lines of meditation, right? That's kind of what we're doing with meditation. I mean, that's kind of what mindfulness is about. We're concentrating on being in the moment. We're concentrating on one thing. We're focusing on our breath. We're, you know, transcendental meditation. Uh, I love the description that I'm putting my body to sleep and keeping my mind awake. And like the whole thing is just, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do my little mantra, whether I'm actually seeing it or not. I'm just going to imagine how that feels to my body. And like, that's what I'm going to think about. I'm going to think about that mantra over and over and over and over again until I, I'm in like the lowest sympathetic state I can possibly be. And I already told you that's when you sleep. Yeah. The, the mental technique that works the best for me. And I thought it was just me, but I shared it with listeners and people said it was a game changer for them too is where you think of a random word and then you go through each letter and you think of three things that start with that letter. So if it was like summer, you'd start with S and you'd picture a sandbag and a sandwich and a shoe. And then you do A, or I can't spell, I can't spell. Then you do U. (laughs) But when I first read that, they said it was because it mimics the falling asleep brain state. Does that make any sense to you? Or do you think it's more the focusing on one boring thing thing i imagine you know if if that was if that was anything other than just like a marketing soundbite i i could imagine that that perhaps if you did functional mris on people say like you've studied people's brains while they did that and you studied people's brains while they were asleep and you might notice that the activity in the various regions of the brain look very similar. Now, do they know if the chemistry is the same? Absolutely not. They'd have no idea unless they're biopsying every region of these people's brains and shoving needles all through their brain, all through their skulls and into their brains. So I would say like, it wouldn't surprise me if you could come up with some sort of mental technique that would look a lot like your brain, and so what we call the stage one, which is like the stage one sleep is really pre-sleep. So for most people, you have to kind of go back to when you were younger. But 
the definition of sleep is that I'm not paying attention to my environment, my environment, right? My eyes still work. My ears still work. I can still taste. I can still smell. I can still feel touch. I can still feel hot and cold and sharp. And like I, everything still works. It's just my brain's going to quit paying attention to it. And once my brain's not paying attention to it at all, we're going to call that sleep. And so pre-sleep is when you're laying in bed and you're aware of what's going on, but you are also aware that you aren't processing it like you normally do. Right. Like you can hear people in the other room, like going, like I can hear people talking or like I can hear a television or I can hear my neighbor or dog or whatever. But I'm not, I'm not really processing it. It's not like, it's not like quite into where like I'm dreaming about it. Like I'm kind of aware of what's going on, but I'm not really paying attention to it. So you would be able to look at that brain state with something like a functional MRI or something as simple as just an EEG where you're looking at the brain waves and and you could say, well, this is what stage one sleep looks like. And so it wouldn't surprise me if you could do mental techniques that look a lot like that. And I would guess if this has been done, that meditation and breath work and progressive muscle relaxation and all of these types of things probably look similar. Well, listeners, try it and pick a really long word and you'll be surprised because you'll be like, oh, okay, this is not going to work. Like, and then you wake up the next day. It's incredible. I'm not sure if I can spell well enough to do that. Yeah. Just do super califragilistic, whatever. And you'll be good. Be good to go. Just trying to come up with that word might put me to sleep. Probably. Okay. So you actually touched on this a second ago. You were talking about how with the stories to kids that it's actually better if it's more familiar to them. So I've had on the show before the founders of a device called Apollo Neuro, which uses sound wave therapy to help with like the stress response. And I found it really, really beneficial for sleep. It has a sleep mode. A lot of my listeners have found it really helpful. And Charlotte wanted to know, well, she was talking about the different devices and specifically the Apollo Neuro, which she's on the brink of purchasing. And then the reason I said it relates is Sophia wants to know about the Apollo using it every night. She says, am I stealing something from my own ability to regulate my sleep or is it okay as long as I'm getting results? So like say a person's using, you know, a device like that where they're finding it really helpful to help them fall asleep. Does that mean they're becoming dependent on it? Can they use it every night? What are your thoughts? I would say that if that thing works and it's like a game changer for you, just keep using it. I mean, I don't see any long-term detriment. Like the question that she's asking is very valid. Like if I do this every night and what happens if I lose my watch and I can't do it, will I be able to sleep? Well, you might struggle a little bit. I don't know. So there, there's kind of two possibilities. So it's a lot like fitness. So when I, when I work with clients, I work with all aspects of their health. Sleep is one of them, and then there's nutrition, and then there's exercise, and then there's stress mitigation, which is part of the sleep. So we, we work on all of these things, and they all, everybody kind of has their strengths and weaknesses. Some things are more difficult than others for other people. I do an annual program with these people, and what happens is like the work at the beginning of the year is very, very intensive. It very, feels very restrictive. It feels laborious it feels a little too technical sometimes confusing frustrating and it takes a lot of discipline to do it but once you get past all of that 
and you start reaping the physiologic changes of that, your body and your brain become so much higher functioning that all of that stuff becomes easy. And then once you're well-practiced at it, it becomes even easier. So like when I work with somebody who wants to lose 30 pounds as part of their annual program, and they're just like, they haven't worked out in 10 years and they're, you know, they're just whatever. So that person needs a lot of guidance and training you know, there's ideal, and there's and then there's reality. So we can't we can't all do what we sh- what we know we should do ideally, ideally, and still do everything else in our lives that we have limitations. So there's ideal and there's reality, and then that bridge in between ideal and reality, we bridge that with supplements, and I would consider this a supplement, right? It's a supplemental way to help with your sleep. So if you can't build an ideal sleep routine. And, you know, there, there's just a gap. Like, I, like, I've done everything I can possibly do, but because of my schedule, because of my work, because of my kids, because of whatever it is, like, this is not ideal. And, and we bridge that. We bridge that with nutritional supplements. We bridge that with gadgets and devices and techniques and all this other stuff. And I would consider those this the same thing. Now, after my patient gets in good shape and loses 30 pounds... Do they have to do all the stuff that they had to do at the beginning of the year to keep that weight off and to stay in good shape? No. Like they can go into a maintenance phase. So it's just as possible that this device could help you really train yourself to get to sleep well. And then as you get better and better sleep, your body becomes more and more accustomed to sleeping well. You might need this thing less and less and less. Yeah, that's actually what I personally have experienced with it. And for listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to the interview that I did with the developer and founder. But it's basically that. And that's what he said was that, because I asked if it was addictive, does it become more or less effective with use? And basically in, in the studies they'd done, they found that because it's changing your system and helping with all of that, you just get better without it. So, and that's what I've experienced. But of course, everybody is an N of one. Yeah. And and if anybody's ever worried about dependence on anything, then use it as your supplement, as your supplemental behavior, technique, device, whatever, for whatever you're using it for. Use it until you're at the stage you want to be and then try tapering yourself off of that. Right. It would be no be no different than any anything else. You know, my my clients essentially do like an elimination diet at the beginning because we don't know, right? It'd be anything. And so then we started adding things back super, super slowly, right? But so what they did at the beginning was very restrictive. And over time, we could loosen things up and and still have even better performance. So it it could be true with any kind of supplemental thing you're doing, like using that stress-free worksheet that I was telling you about. It's not like you have to use that every night for the rest of your life to get good sleep. It's like teach yourself that concept. You're really familiar with that. You're really good at that. And then you'll find that it's probably not that important to you. And then you'll do like, you'll go through some stressful periods and you might want to get back to it because you realize your sleep is suffering and you need to like, I need to kind of hone in my skills again. You know, it's like our body weight fluctuates, our fitness fluctuates, you know, our sleep could do the same. You just have to be mindful and watch yourself and be honest with yourself about how you're performing. What do you say to people who struggle with their non-sleep-supporting electronic devices? Monica says, what are some tips for how to put down the phone so I can actually go to sleep? Just put it down. (laughs) I might be making this up, but I feel like 
I just heard it. If I could picture who told it to me, I would be more confident. But I feel like somebody just told me there's an app you can put on your phone that will basically shut your phone off at certain times in the day. And there's something you have to do something really complex to get it back like you know plug it in and like use certain buttons or something like they have that for the computer so i mean what i tell people the number one key to all behavioral change is convincing yourself that it's really important right so i give this example a lot if i were to offer you 10 million dollars and you knew that i was good for it and you believed me and i said i'm going to give you 10 million dollars if you can sleep eight hours a night or 30 nights in a row i'll give you a year to do it do you think you'd be able to do that almost certainly everybody would figure out a way to do it now the 10 million dollars has nothing to do with your ability to do it it's just your motivation for doing it so the motivation is by far the most important part so you have to know if, if you're really addicted to your phone, which that is a, obviously a very real thing, changes your neurochemistry the same way other addictive things do. It, it is a true addiction. If you're really addicted to your phone and you need to break that addiction, the very first thing that you need to do is figure out your why. Like You need a really good why. So around sleep, I tell people, go to PubMed, go to Google Scholar and put in sleep. And anything that's important to you, sleep and emotions, sleep and strength, sleep and energy, sleep and concentration, sleep and memory, sleep and financial success, like, like anything you want to do. Sleep makes, like sleep makes you better at everything. So with the device, I would say, go scare yourself, like get on, you know, a scholarly site of some type and just start reading about how much I, I heard this is great documentary. I haven't seen it. Supposedly there's this great documentary about how social media affects your brain and how it's causing everybody to be addicted. I can't remember the name of it. I, I literally was going to watch it like this week, the social dilemma, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, do things like that to where you have a really big why. Once you have a really big why, you'll be able to figure out the how. For me personally, the the thing is just like no, nothing. Nothing's allowed in my bedroom. Like my bedroom has a bed and two nightstands and a dresser and a closet, and that's all it has in it. And that's all it will ever have in it. Like I don't bring my phone into my bed. My computer never comes into my bed. Like never, never, ever, ever, ever charges out there. Is there a argument to be made for? Okay, it's kind of like food because with food, a lot of people have like food fears and they're really scared of eating certain foods because of how they're potentially going to react to it. But then there's this whole idea that, you know, it's probably potentially better to eat foods that might not be the best for you, but in like a loving social environment where you're enjoying it compared to, you know, the, the healthiest foods in a state of fear or restriction. And I feel like I personally in my sleep history... I read a book called Lights Out, which scarred me for life. And up until reading that book, <laughs> before reading that book, I always saw myself as like, oh, you know, sleep when I'm dead and I'll get sleep and it'll all be okay. And then I read that book and I like sort of flipped to the other side. I was like, oh, you know, everything has to be perfect with with sleep and I have to get all my sleep. And I, I think there's a healthy balance in between the two. So like 
what are your thoughts on that? And like your, your perspective of sleep, like, is it possibly better to, you know, enjoy yourself and not be worried about sleep and get a, and get less sleep at night compared to getting more, but. We're really wading into deep waters here and, and we're going to have to get a little philosophical and a little psychological. So there is, of course, the balance of life, right? There's the yin and the yang, good and the evil, like everything about the human experience requires the opposition for it to make any sense, right? Up doesn't mean anything if there's no down and right doesn't mean anything if there's no left and the, all those types of things. So there is a balance, as I was saying earlier, the anabolic and the catabolic, those are exactly opposite. Those are the yin and yang, but you need both of them. Like it's not like one of them's always good and one of them's always bad. Like you need both of them. Catabolic activity is part of normal sort of cleaning out your body and changing, changing things over. So you need both. So I can't philosophically say, well, this is what, this is what you should think about. How I view it may not resonate with you. And primarily because of, if not immutable, pretty darn close to immutable personal characteristics. And neuroticism is, is a very important one. And, you know, basically... If you're high in neuroticism, you basically worry. You're basically, you're, you're motivated by the idea of the failure of the goal, sort of, to speak, you know, so to speak. So you're motivated to sleep because you don't want to fail at sleeping, right? Like you don't want to fail to get a good night's sleep because it's really important. And so, like you, so you, you're, you're kind of a worrier, right? And, and I'm not saying you specifically, I'm just using that. You know that is as an example. Sort of the so sort of the higher the higher you are in, in traits of neuroticism, that's going to change your balance, right? Because there's the opposite, right? There's the the surfer stoner in California that life's a beach and like whatever, bro, and nothing stresses them out. Well, that's probably not a healthy way to go through your life either, right? And then you know, counting all. You know, and then think of something like OCD. That's like a classic neurotic behavior, right? It's like I have to brush my teeth 76 times this way and 76 times that way and wash my hands a certain way and do like all these things. Like I have to, have to, have to do all that. So there's a balance in between there. And I can't, I can't say what that is for, for each person. But what I can tell you is that if you feel like something is stressing you out, it probably is because we're really, as, as humans, we're not that good at it, interpreting our own stress levels. I know I'm horrible at it. People who, people who are close to me will say, oh my gosh, you must be so stressed. I'm like, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm really, like, it's not that big of a deal. And they're like, are you sure? Because this really seems like a bad deal. I'm like, oh no, I'm good. Like, I'm totally fine. And then like two weeks later, once the, everything's been resolved, I'm like, holy smokes, I was a mess. I was so stressed out. I didn't even really know it. And so we're not that good at it. Like we, we just aren't that, that good at our, at our own introspection. And what gets worse is when you don't sleep well, your self-assessment, your ability to assess yourself gets even worse. So it, it's sort of like being drunk, like sleep deprivation has been compared many times to intoxication and, you know, they've measured performance levels and then like there's a whole body of literature on all of that. And one of the things that they find is if you consistently sleep deprive somebody, so as, as one of the earlier questions was, you know, if, if, if somebody's been sleeping really well for a long time, and we, we call that sleep adaptive, 
So they had like they've had a really healthy sleep for a long time, and their sleep is great, perfect. They're performing great. Every they've got no complaints. And then you take away two hours of sleep, and then you have them in the morning after their short sleep. You have them do something like whatever it is you've been doing, and it can be cognitive or physical, it doesn't matter. And you test them, and then you say, "How do you think you did?" And they go. I didn't do very well. I was tired. Like I, I didn't get enough sleep. I was tired today. And then day two, same thing. Day three, same thing maybe. But definitely day four, you say, how do you think you did? And they go, I think I did as well as I've ever done. I'm told, I feel like I'm totally adapted to this sleep schedule. And I think I did as good as I ever did. And their results are actually worse. Like they're actually getting worse at a faster rate at that point. Like they're, for like the first... I want to say 20, 22, 24 days or something like your, your declining performance is accelerating and then it kind of plateaus after a while, like after three to four weeks and you, you don't always, you don't get progressively that much worse every day or you'd be dead in a year. The point being is that we're not good at assessing ourselves. So I would say get people who care about you or close to you to kind of help you figure out if you're going a little too far, if you're becoming obsessed with this, if you if you feel like there's a possibility that it's stressing you out too much, then, you know, you have to figure out your balance. Some people thrive on stress. Some people hate it. Some people don't want any. Very individualized. Some people flip, like me, feel like I thrived, and then that all crashed and burned. So... Going back to, because you talked about this whole sleep routine of, you know, going to bed, not looking at the clock, waking up when the alarm clock goes off. So in the in-between for people who are waking up, so does it even matter? Like Amy says, how do you keep from waking up in the middle of the night? Like, should you focus on that or should you just, and then Wendy says like, why can't I sleep all night? So many questions about that. Or Christine says she's unable to fall back asleep when she wakes up. The most common reason that they can't go back to sleep is because they're worried about not being able to go back to sleep. So it goes something like this. You wake up, tomorrow's an important day. You have something to do that you really want to do, really need to do, and your performance is important. And you're going to go to bed and you're going to get your eight hours of sleep, so you'll be really ready for this. And then you wake up four hours later and you look at the clock oh my god i've only been asleep four hours i feel so wide awake what if i don't go back to sleep man you know my presentation isn't for nine more hours like i'll be i'll be totally exhausted by then and then what then what if i did this what if i did it or you just wake up and as you're laying there you just start thinking about what happened today or what do you need to do in the morning or the argument that you had about the dirty dishes in the sink and somebody said something nasty to you and what, oh man, you know what? I wish I would have said this instead of that. You know, like this whole conversation in your head and you start waking yourself up. Your brain will wake you up. Your brain will cause your adrenals to start secreting more stress hormones and you'll wake up. It'd be almost impossible to get back to sleep because as we've talked about before, it takes about three hours for all of the physiologic neurochemical 
changes in our brains to happen before we feel like falling asleep. You know, that's how our ancestors evolved. If you look at hunter-gatherer tribes that exist today, there are a lot of people, and this is surprising to me, but there are a lot of people in the world who have never experienced electricity. They have nothing to do with electricity. They've never even seen it. And they're still hunter-gatherers, and, they, and that's what they do. They get up and they collect food and they kill food and they fix their tools and weapons and they eat and they drink and you know that's it they talk and that that's their lives and when we look at those people they all i mean a lot of areas i i wouldn't want to hazard a guess at how many how many different regions i've seen that studies in but it's quite a few and this the same thing happens and if and if you've ever gone camping you probably recognize the same things. The sun goes down. It's not like you fall asleep when the sun goes down. The sun goes down and you start feeling like you're sleepy and you want to go to sleep about three to three and a half hours after the sun goes down. And as I said, like part of that is your cortisol level dropping. So then if I wake up in the middle of the night and I raise my cortisol up, as soon as and cortisol doesn't come alone. It comes with epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are adrenaline. So now you have adrenaline in your brain, and that starts changing your neurophysiology. And now your brain chemistry isn't really set up for sleep. And you're worrying, and you're creating stress hormones. People, and, and something I want to make clear is that stress hormones doesn't, like I said, it's not negative. It doesn't mean you don't want it. It doesn't mean that you, you're feeling anxiety. It's putting stress on your system, even if it's just something you're trying to figure out, something you're thinking about, like how to say a sentence in Spanish and you're going over it in your head like that's a stressor. doesn't mean it's a negative thing, right? But needing to get up and go to the bathroom, that's a stressor, right? <laughs> it's something that's going to require more stress hormones than sleeping. So anytime you wake up in the middle of the night, it's almost certainly that you either are running continuously high stress hormones. And so, man, that's going to be a whole nother topic. <laughs> All right, let me say this other one first. The most likely thing is that you're waking up and your thought process itself, doing the mental math, thinking about what, well, if I don't fall asleep and then, you know, if I don't fall asleep for like another hour and a half, I can like set my alarm clock 30 minutes later and I could not do this or I could not do that or whatever. And then you start, like you just start doing a bunch of things, a lot of mental activity that gets in your way. Now there's another side of that, which is related. So as I said, if I need eight hours of sleep and I only get six, I still have to do tomorrow. How do I do tomorrow? I do it with more stress hormones, which means by definition, I'm going to bed tomorrow night with more stress hormones. Then I went to bed tonight with, let's see if tonight was a good night. And the thing that makes you feel like sleeping, what we call sleep pressure, sleep pressure is caused by a molecule called adenosine. And adenosine is the backbone of the sort of fuel cell of every cell in your body. They all use something called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And every time you cleave a phosphate group off of this molecule, it releases this burst of energy that can be used by the cell. So it goes from three to two to one. So that's ATP, and then it's ADP, and then it's AMP, mono, and then it's just A. And then when you have a high amount of adenosine, what that essentially means is that you're using energy faster than you're producing energy. And you're being left with a lot of adenosine that you can't build back up into ATP to be to start being used for biological systems again. 
that adenosine in your brain binds to receptors in your brain. And the more adenosine that's in your brain and the more your brain's perceiving it, the more sleep pressure you have. And that's like that drive to go to sleep. That's the part where you say, I feel sleepy. I feel like going to sleep. That's being caused by adenosine. If you're running high enough stress hormones throughout the day, let's say you're not getting enough sleep, you're not treating your body well, you're just in a super stressful environment, you're overtraining, whatever it is, and you're running really high stress hormones all the time, but you're also burning through a ton of energy, right? And you're producing a lot of adenosine. You may have enough adenosine to cause enough sleep pressure to just knock you out. Like it's just like it, you can't overcome it. And by way, and by the way, if your listeners don't know, that's what caffeine does: is it blocks adenosine receptors. Your brain doesn't perceive adenosine. That's all it does. And if you have enough adenosine, that where there's just so much pressure in your brain, you might be able to just like lay down and fall asleep, like no problem. Bam, I'm going to pass out. Now, once you cleanse your brain and restore that ATP, if you still have high stress hormones. When you're in a lighter phase of sleep, you're more likely to wake up and you may already have too high stress hormones to go back to sleep because of whatever you're doing that's leading to not sleeping in the first place. So that's another possibility. And, and one of the big reasons there's a substantial difference in uh, male and female insomnia is that women usually can't initiate sleep. That's very common. They lay in bed and their minds race and they, you know, they think about a billion different things and they have a hard time falling asleep. Men typically fall asleep really quickly, so quickly that their wives usually complain about it, especially if they're snoring. And there's like, he falls asleep in 10 seconds and then he snores and then I can't sleep because she's thinking about his snoring and, and blah, 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 right. But one of the things to remember is like the male and female brains aren't really that different in size, right? Um, I mean, like a really big man and a really small woman would be a drastic difference. But if you, you know, if you look at the average man and the average woman, their brains are maybe five, 10% difference in mass, right? But the man probably has 30 to 40% more muscle mass, especially upper body muscle mass. And all of that produces ATP. So men produce a lot more adenosine during the day and they have a higher sleep pressure and men are much more likely to be able to come home and just like pass out on the couch. And then they wake up after maybe one sleep cycle, which is only like 90 to 120 minutes. And then they feel wide awake because they're still running around totally stressed out and everything else is still wrong, but they just had enough sleep pressure to get them to go to sleep. They didn't recover all the way, but they... They got through that to where there wasn't enough sleep pressure to, to keep them asleep and their stress hormones were too high to allow them to go back to sleep. This is so fascinating. And you touched on so many things. What about waking up at like very specific times on the clock? Northern Bell says, why do I always wake up at 3 a.m.? No exceptions. And then Anna wanted to know if there was a circadian reason for why people wake up at certain times. And I, I experienced that as well, waking up at the exact same time. So... There's a couple of possibilities. If you're running around with excessive stress hormones and you just need to clear enough waste products out of your brain to be awake again, you might wake up after one or two sleep cycles. If you're going to sleep about the same time every night and your sleep cycles are consistent, you could wake up approximately the same time every, every night. If you're waking up at exactly the same time every night, my best guess is that there's something externally that's doing that. There's something you're sensing. That's doing that. 
So like a great example, I had a client, he was a super technical computer graphic artist designer, did all this website design, graphic arts and coding and programming. He was just brilliant guy. And he had all these computers in the room next to his room. And then he had some sort of backup system where at a certain time of the night, like everything downloaded into this external hard drive. And this is a long time ago when, when external hard drives were big things. And it took us about a month to figure it out, but he was waking up at exactly the same time every single night and eventually figured it out that he's waking up exactly when his computers started the backup. Now, whether or not that was creating a sound, whether that was just enough EMF to wake him up, I like, I, I still don't know the answer to that, but he, he figured it out and he tested it by, by changing what time he had to do it. And he shifted it an hour later and an hour earlier. And he woke up an hour later and an hour earlier. So we're like, okay, that's definitely it. And then he just had to put some shielding up and do some other, whatever he handled it. But if it's exact and, and you can go to sleep at different times and that's exact, I would suggest that there's probably something external causing that. There's a, foghorn going off somewhere or something that you can sense. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream 
actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold content 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. This is a question I have and have had for quite a while. So say that you have a certain amount of sleep cycles per night. Do people naturally wake up between the cycles should you wake up between the cycles? Does it matter if you wake up between the cycles if you immediately go into the next cycle? I was reading something about like hunter-gatherer tribes and it was saying that they wake up in between cycles, but they just go right back to sleep and it's okay. So there's a whole lot of possibilities in that, but I'll, I'll just say the most general stuff. So it's, it's a lot easier when I have my PowerPoint and I can, I can point to a histogram and I can say like, this is what sleep looks like stages, stages one, two, three, four, staying four, you come back out of four, three, two, you go through wakefulness to get to REM. REM is actually a, a higher frequency brain state and being awake than the, than the stage one sleep was, which is what we were talking about earlier. It's like the pre-sleep when you're still aware of it, just kind of feeling a little groggy. So you're actually going back past through that to go into REM. And then once you finish your REM, you're going back past that again to get into the deeper sleep. Get back at you. Yeah. And so you're going down this rabbit hole and then you're coming back up and you're going all the way out of the rabbit hole, going across the ground and going back into another rabbit hole. And so 
like it, it is completely normal and, and it depends on what you mean by being awake. So if we're talking about a polysomnograph with a sleep study, when we're looking at your brain waves and we're measuring your brain waves and your heart rate and your respiratory rate and your movement and like all these things, we put them all together and we make this histogram and we say, this is sleep and this is not sleep. Are you waking up? Well, what that really means is do you have a physiologic state that looks to us like you're awake? Do you have the brainwave, the basic, the basic brainwave patterns that you would have if you're awake? Do you have the basic muscle tension, respiratory heart rate, all of that that you would have if you're awake? And if, like, are we calling that awaking? And that gets really technical. And there are people who specialize in reading those studies. And that's really to diagnose sleep disease. It's, it's not important for our purposes. But yes, you essentially go through wakefulness, what could technically be called wakefulness, by EEG, by sort of scientific standards. Now, as I said, the whole definition of being asleep is that you're not paying attention. You're not aware of your environment. So if all of those things add up and in physiologically measuring you without being able to see you, we would say, looks like that guy's awake. If your eyes are still closed and you're not aware of your environment, technically you're still asleep. But the short answer is yes, everybody wakes up during the night. Everybody wakes up multiple times during the night, but it only matters if it's interfering with the quality of your sleep. So if you're waking up 35 times per night, but you feel like you get a great night's sleep and your performance is great and every, like, everything's going just the way you want it to be, then, you know, all right, you woke up 35 times. If you woke up and you were aware that you were awake 35 times, that's, that's you know, that's probably a problem. But did you technically wake up 35 times in the night? Yeah, but you don't remember it. You didn't experience it. It's not an issue. Now, there's the other thing which I thought you were going to say, and maybe you were alluding to, like there, there, as we move farther from the equator during the winter, of course, the nights get a lot longer in the Northern Hemisphere, at least. And so we don't need 12 hours of sleep when we're adults, but it's dark for 12 hours. So as the sun goes down, and then three hours after the sun goes down, I feel like sleeping because the, my neurochemistry has changed. Or maybe, well, that wouldn't happen because your circadian rhythm would be slightly different. So maybe it takes four hours. And then I fall asleep. I don't, I don't need to sleep the whole rest of the night to get my full night's sleep. And so what we know basically through journaling, and because most of the hunter-gatherers, as I was talking about earlier, that have never experienced electricity, most of them are pretty close to the equator. We don't have good research on this, but... We know it through journaling in the Northern Hemisphere. That it's really, it's for hundreds of years, it's been really common pre-electricity for people to sleep, uh, what we call half sleep. So the, as I said, like the beginning of the night is primarily deep sleep. And then the last thing in the morning is primarily REM sleep. So kind of once you get sort of to the midway point of that, where REM and deep are kind of equal, that's sort of like the midpoint of sleep. So you've done your primary deep sleep. Now you're moving to your REM sleep. And people tended to wake up in sort of the middle of the night. And because the nights were so long and they had plenty of time to get to sleep and because they all lived in one room shacks, you know, or whatever. And that was like the time that mom and dad could have sex and have some privacy or whatever. Like that people started doing things in, in the middle of the night. It was, it was pretty common for people to be up for two or three hours in the middle of the night, go back to sleep. 
wake up right around sun coming up because they're so far from the equator. The night's so long, it's much longer than eight hours and they didn't have electricity. So there wasn't a whole lot they could do. Is that normal or was that something learned from moving further from the equator? Like that's a whole like very long, slippery, evolutionary, philosophical conversation. It's beyond my expertise. Well, I was wanting to talk about that anyway, so I'm glad you brought it up. The thing I was referring to was I was reading Seamland's newest book. He was saying something about how, what I just said, like hunter-gatherer tribes would wake up in between sleep cycles, but they would go right back to sleep and it's like, okay. I'm completely making this up as I say it. What I thought initially when you said that was, well, that would make sleep. That would make sense because you're living in a hunter-gatherer world. You don't live in a safe world you can become the hunted pretty quickly, right? Most hunter-gatherers live in areas where there are predators that will eat them. So sleep is a very vulnerable period. So it's completely possible that evolution favored those who woke up, you know, for a few minutes and checked their environment and felt safe again before they fell back to sleep. (laughs) Like, yep, no lions, no cobras. All right, I'm going to bed, going back to sleep. Uh, that, like I said, I'm, I, I'm totally making that up, but that just occurred to me when you said it. I said, well, that, that would make sense. Yeah, because he was comparing it to like the difference with how today we wake up and there's like a chronic worry, so then we can't fall back asleep. So that was the context of all of that. While we're talking about sex, I have two questions about that. Emily says, I often hear that the bed should only be reserved for sleep and sex. I understand sleep, but why sex? Besides the fact that a bed is conducive to that, how does sex affect sleep? And then Victoria says, for the best sleep, when should I have sex? Morning, day, night, none of the above, all of the above. Good questions. So a couple of layers to that. I have a very bad joke. I always say during this, but most people at this state are familiar with the love hormone oxytocin, right? Oxytocin is like the bonding, loving hormone. When you, after orgasm, your brain secretes a huge amount of oxytocin and it's very soothing and relaxing and it makes you not worry and think about other things because you're in sort of this blissful state. But I think over time, women somehow evolved to make them want to talk when oxytocin gets secreted. That's my bad joke. But I've been saying that for a really long time. I don't know if I came up with that. Was that in lights out? Like I, I don't remember when I added that to my lecture, but I've said that for a long time. I don't, so I don't know if I read that phrase or I might be the originator of that saying, I don't know. Of the talking from oxytocin? No, about the bed is for sleep and sex only. I was thinking about that. I was like, where did that? I mean, I've been, I've been saying that for like 10 years, but it's probably been around longer than that. I probably read it from someone else. It, it, you know. I'm going to have to research this. That's actually a really good question. What I've always said, so if it did come from me, people aren't finishing the phrase. I say your bed is for sleep and sex only. But to be clear, I'm not saying you can only have sex in your bed. The point being is that people do have sex in their bed. Couples have sex everywhere, and that's okay. So we're not saying that the bed is designed for sex. What we're saying is that the bed is a common place to have sex, so that's okay. It's not okay to bring your computer into bed. That's a totally different thing, right? Like that if you're one of the behavioral psychological concepts around sleep rituals and sleep hygiene and all that, 
is that you associate your bed with sleep, but you can also associate your bed with sex. And depending on how you do your thing, like maybe that's really relaxing. Maybe that's really vigorous. I don't know. But the the point being like, we don't want to say that you shouldn't have sex in your bed. But the ideal thing would be that your bed is just for sleep. But we're allowing sex in there because it's a common place where adults get to bond and get some private time and they're naked already or nearly naked. And, you know, so it's fine. And like I said, if you do have the neurophysiology after sleep or after after orgasm is very calming. It's very parasympathetic. The entire act of like a male erection requires him to be parasympathetic dominant. If he's stressed, he can't get an erection. That's why things like cocaine and Adderall and stuff like that, or, or fear, like fear of not performing well, like gives, you know, gives, makes guys impotent or gives them erectile dysfunction is because there's too much stress hormones. Women are very similar, like the lubrication and blood engorgement, like all of that comes from parasympathetic. You have to have, like, you have to be relaxed to be able to have sex. So you're getting into like a relaxed state the actual orgasm is sympathetic, but then it leads to sort of this parasympathetic flush afterwards with a lot of neurochemistry that can be very conducive to just feeling safe, non-worried, connected, loved. And that's a good that's a good state to be able to fall asleep in. What about alcohol? When we look at the histogram, as I was referring to earlier, like the the diagram that comes out of the sleep study, once we combine all the information. And we go through the stages of sleep. The most destructive sleep drug that you could use, and I will include alcohol as a sleep drug because it's commonly used that way. The most destructive sleep drug to deep sleep is alcohol. The most destructive drug that I'm aware of for REM sleep are the pharmaceuticals, the Z drugs, Ambien, Lunesta, and benzodiazepines like Valium and Xanax and those, that, that class of drugs. So if you take both, you get the detriments of both. But actually, any drug that you take interferes with your sleep cycles. It will change your sleep architecture. If you use a wearable device, you'll, you'll usually notice that you'll have a increased heart rate of your average resting heart rate will probably be anywhere from like 5 to 15 beats per minute higher just after a couple of alcoholic drinks because alcohol is essentially toxic. Any toxin in our body gets fought off by the immune system and the and the sympathetic kind of nervous system tone is leading to that. So it's just sort of a metabolic stressor to have alcohol. Now, with that said, I'm not saying that you should never drink. And the ideal would be to drink far enough from your bedtime to where you've had time to sort of flush all the toxins out. So Rob Wolf always says drink as far from your bedtime as possible, but that would mean you should drink, you should start drinking when you wake up. Right. But we don't want to do that. So what you want is like plenty of time to, for the alcohol to clear your system and to rehydrate because alcohol de- does dehydrate you, whether you recognize it's doing that or not, it is, it will dehydrate you and it builds up some Toxins that all have to be filtered through your liver and your kidney and processed, put in your bladder, you know, all all that stuff has to be excreted. And so if you 
use alcohol as sort of, uh, you know, a way to relax after a hard day of work or whatever, like do that immediately when you come home, right? If you get home at, you know, if you get home at six o'clock, like do it right then. Like don't wait and do it till eight or nine and then try to go to bed at 10. Okay. Might need to work on that one. (laughs) Interestingly, people perceive that they sleep really well when they drink, but when you do sleep studies on them, they sleep horribly. Can you tell listeners, and then maybe we'll just touch on it again in the part two, just in case people only listen to one of the episodes, how does your sleep remedy supplement work? And you did recently release a kid version, which is really exciting because people have been asking me about that. And Colleen, for example, she said, do you have recommendations for toddlers and children who don't sleep or stay asleep? And parents of said children who don't get sleep either. So your sleep remedy supplement, how did you develop it? And what's the update on the kids version? Sleep formulation itself came from the the SEAL team story I was talking about when I when I became the doctor for these guys who were really just coming to me for help with their performance and not with disease. And I figured out sleep to be one of the major factors because most of them were using sleep drugs and alcohol. And they were just getting a few hours of sleep and saying, I'll get up really early tomorrow or, you know, the wake up, the wake up really early, can't go back to sleep. And they just go, I'll go to work. I'll work out really hard. I'll work all day. I won't take any naps and I'll come home. I'll go to sleep tonight and I'll sleep great. And then, you know, they keep doing that for years and it never works. So when I coerced them into not drinking and not taking their sleep drugs, I had to give them something and you know to replenish that and so like i said i was very naive about sleep i didn't i never had a single class on sleep in medical school i don't know that anyone does so i had to i had to learn all this myself i was in a good position of you know being able to call up experts and say hey i'm the doctor for the west coast seal teams could you know could i you know could you help me with this could you help could you teach me this could you could i consult with you could i come proctor under you could i learn from you whatever do you have suggested readings Uh, you know whatever and so people were very helpful and i got to learn a lot really quickly and this was 2009 which was the sort of right at the beginning i say maybe like a maybe about a year earlier than that Rob Wolf and sort of paleo crowd, the sort of the lunatic fringe health obsessed were really into this new thing, vitamin D3. This was so important and all these effects of vitamin D3 and how much should you be taking? And, you know, so I was exposed to that. And, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was learning about sleep was that vitamin D3 was part of the production pathway for melatonin. And then, you know, all these other effects of vitamin D3 and that it had been associated with poor quality sleep. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe. Okay, that, let's see. You know, because seals work at night and sleep during the day. And if they do go outside during the day and train, they're usually covered from head to toe and, you know, camouflage uniforms and helmets and goggles and gloves and like all sorts of stuff. So they're all vitamin D3 deficient. I, I had all their labs. I knew they were deficient. So I'm like, I'll just give them vitamin D3. I'm going to fix everything and I win. Like, And of course, it became more complex than that. Vitamin D3 requires magnesium for every action it does. So started learning about magnesium deficiency. That's a huge thing. So we added that. Put in some melatonin because we know that's sort of the initiator. That's like the cascade. That's the starter pistol for the whole thing to... Your whole for your brain to start getting ready for sleep is the secretion of melatonin. So put in a little bit of that. We massage that around a little bit, and then 
started thinking more about the production of melatonin, just reversing that pathway. And the pathway, most people are familiar with the, what would they call the tryptophan coma, like the turkey Thanksgiving day coma. Meat has an amino acid in it called tryptophan. And turkey doesn't have any, it doesn't have especially high concentrations of tryptophan. It's just most people don't overeat steak. Uh, they overeat turkey. So they get a big whack of, you know, because they're, they're having turkey and ham and like whatever. So they, they're just eating a lot of, they're eating a lot of meat and they get a lot of tryptophan. And then they also have like a lot of carbs. And so that's part of it. They're getting like this glycemic burst and then crash. But the tryptophan is leading down the melatonin production pathway. And with excess, you can drive that pathway and start producing a little melatonin. And then you get your, you know, your glucose spike and crash and people take a nap. So the pathway for that is tryptophan becomes 5-hydroxytryptophan, 5-hydroxytryptophan with the help of magnesium and vitamin D3 then becomes serotonin. Serotonin then becomes melatonin. And then melatonin, like I said, that initiates the cascade. One of the main things that it does to keep your brain from paying attention to your environment is it secrete it it causes the increase of a production of a neuropeptide called GABA, G-A-B-A, gamma aminobutyric acid, that sort of works across the entire neocortex which is what we think of when we picture a human brain kind of that whole region it makes it harder for those neurons to fire that's the region of our brain that's involved in perception and so all of our senses and all of our movement they're all coming from that region of our brain we're, and we're sort of quieting that area of the brain down so my product <laughs> has tryptophan 5-hydroxytryptophan magnesium vitamin d3 a little bit of melatonin, but I don't want to, I'm not trying to over, I'm not trying to give you all the melatonin you need. I'm giving you a dusting of melatonin. I'll explain why in a minute. And then I have GABA in there because GABA is doing the job that we, like I said, that we need to do. L-theanine increases, that's another amino acid, and that increases the activity, the effectiveness, let's say, of GABA. And then I wasn't doing this in the SEAL teams. I've subsequently added it a couple of years after. So I I still had SEALs taking it, but I I never put this in the original formulation. I was phosphatidylserine and phosphatidylserine, again, a a normally occurring biological molecule, but it decreases the production of cortisol, cortisol being the stress hormone. So if stress hormone excessive stress hormones are one of the reasons you're not getting sleep that's just kind of like an added benefit but the whole the whole idea of of the formulation was if we picture the hunter gatherers as our evolutionary counterparts the sun went down the blue light decreased in their eyes that sparked this pathway down their brain to eventually the back of their brain, something called the pineal gland. And then the pineal gland started secreting melatonin and then melatonin led to increased GABA and lots of other neurophysiologic changes. And melatonin actually shifted the brain chemistry to produce more melatonin as well. And so the whole idea is like if that takes three hours and most people or maybe spending an hour getting ready for bed or half an hour. It's like, how can we compress that three hours, right? That's, again, the difference between ideal and reality. It's like most people don't have three hours 
to get ready for bed and then sleep eight hours as well. So how can we compress it? And so the idea really is, well, let's concentrate everything in your brain that would have probably to the point where it probably would have been after about three hours, right? So let's give you about as much melatonin as we think your brain would have had. Let's give you the GABA. Let's give you the L-theanine to make sure that the GABA is working well because it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier super well. And then let's you know make sure you have the magnesium and the vitamin D3 to be doing your normal production. And then we're going to bring in the substrates from making melatonin so that we know all the ingredients are there. And then we're just going to kind of like prep your brain to say, well, hopefully this is an approximation of where your brain would have been had you spent three hours getting ready for bed instead of an hour or 30 minutes. And then your brain has to do all the work from there. So there's nothing in my product that actually makes you sleep. It's just trying to set the brain state up to where it should be when you're ready to fall asleep. But then your brain has to keep doing the work to keep you asleep. So when I do trade shows and stuff, I get people come up to me all the time and they say, I took your product and I slept for 12 hours and I haven't slept more than four hours in 10 years or something. Like that's absolutely fantastic, but my product did not make you sleep for 12 hours because there's nothing in it that lasts anywhere close to that long. Everything will be used and or disposed of in your bladder or your colon or except the vitamin D3 that gets stored in fat, but like everything else will be out of your system in three to four hours. So there's nothing in my product that will that actually keeps you asleep. Just if we initiate good quality sleep, if we do everything right around it, the behaviors are right correct and then and then we can preload front load the brain with what it should have and make sure it has all the substrate to do do its work then you get really good sleep quality and good and good quality sleep leads to continued sleep right quality sleep leads to more quality sleep poor sleep leads to more poor sleep very unlikely that you start the night with poor sleep and end with good sleep or start with good sleep and end with poor sleep it's very unlikely it's like usually if you get if you initiate with high quality sleep, you finish with high quality sleep. And then the kids formulation was simply an idea. You know, I had to, a lot, just a lot of customers saying, "Can I give this to my kid?" And of course, like we don't do unnecessary research on kids, so there's you know there's not a ton of nutritional supplement research on kids, but there there are some. And basically, I went through and I figured out what would be the most likely sort of nutritionally deficient compounds in a kid versus an adult versus sort of elderly. You can kind of extrapolate along that curve and say, you know, the the ratios of certain ingredients of certain substrates, the ratio should be slightly different because, you know, their brains are different. Their brain chemistry is different. There's regions of their brain that actually have the exact opposite effect when they have GABA when they're younger. And so you don't want a lot of GABA in there. And so it it was just like a lot of tweaking, like thinking about what's going on with the kids and, you know, decreasing the dosage because of course the dosage were all built around the seals. Like that's how we figured it out. And so that's all adult dosing. And so we, we backed everything down to kind of what we figured out was kind of the minimal, you know, the minimal viable product, right? The, The minimal of, dose that's the whole idea for all of this is like it, it's just meant to initiate so it's part of the sleep ritual we made it taste really good so that kids will want to take it and then it becomes part of the bedtime routine and then it encourages bedtime routine and then that encourages better sleep 
So, you know, we've had the idea for a long time and Shayla, my COO, just finally said, I'm doing this. Whether you, whether, whether you want me to do it or not, I'm doing it. And I'm like, all right, go ahead, do it. <laughs> well, that is all brilliant. And congratulations. Well, thank you so much. So I knew we weren't going to get through everything and we didn't. So we're going to have to do a part two. I know you have to go. I can't let you go though before I ask you the question that I ask as the last question for every guest on the podcast. I don't know if you remember it. You might. What is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for my health and and that I'm still alive. <laughs> I've already I've already lived much longer than I thought I would. I'm grateful for my good health. Well, I think that's fantastic. And thank you. I am I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing. Grateful for your supplement, grateful for how you are bringing so much attention to this huge thing that is so elusive for so many of us and providing the tools to really get there. So the good news is, I mean, it's a much, much more common conversation now. When I started this in 2009, people looked at me like I had two heads when I was telling them that their hormones were all regulated while they were asleep and that that's when they were, that's when they were getting better and growing. And I, I mean, I literally got laughed out of rooms. People are just like, oh my God, that's so ridiculous. Like you're, you're a doctor. Wow. Quack. You know, I mean, most people know that now. Like I was talking about blue blocking glasses back then. And everybody's like, what? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm like, no, really? Back when you had to get the goggles. What I had people do is buy gaming glasses because they already had gaming glasses. And the intention of gaming glasses was just to reduce the eye strain. But the way to reduce the eye strain is to put a filter in there for the blue light because the blue light's the most common and most refractive. And so it wasn't what they were designed for, but they worked for it. I mean, they didn't do it as well as like the, you know, the ones that are intentionally designed for it now, but it, it was at least a 50% solution. So, Well, here we are today. So keep on keeping on. I'll talk to you in the future. I look forward to it for part two. Yep. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.